Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Greetings and salutations, scholar warriors and fellow travelers. It is I, CJ, here to share with you another dose of dangerous history. And this episode is going to feature my talk from a few weeks ago at the 2023 Florida State Libertarian Party Convention, and the talk is about the seminal leader, Osceola, who I very much admire and who I see as a hero as both a Florida man and a libertarian. And this was a really neat event, and I had a lot of fun, and I want to say a big thank you to Lisa who is, I forget uh, her exact position, but she's very involved with the Florida LP organization and has been a DHP listener for quite a while and was the main person behind inviting me and helping me, you know, to get there and the logistics and all that sort of stuff. So Lisa, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And also I want to say thanks as well to Patrick, who is... I believe the chairman, and if he's not the chairman, he's something pretty high up in the Florida Mises Caucus of the state LP. And Patrick also helped me to get there and, you know, contributed towards my expenses and things. So, Patrick, thank you very much as well. And I won't get into too much detail here other than to say, man, it's continued to be a difficult last few weeks for me since I put out the last DHP episode. Just a series of unfortunate events, you know, personal and family and so on and so forth. And it's just continued to be a very rough stretch for me. The one good news about all that that I have to report is that I am still on the wagon. As of the recording of this intro, I am 89 days booze free by the time this and then the audio of my talk, you know, put together into a finished product as a podcast episode is published. I'll probably be 90 or a little past 90 days booze free. But as of right now, when I'm recording this intro, I'm at 89 days, no booze. So despite the many stresses and problems and hardships I've been dealing with in recent weeks, at least I've managed to not, I've been tempted a few times, I'll tell you, but at least I've managed to not hit the bottle again and make things even worse. But I hope you're doing better than I've been doing lately, and um, if you haven't been, if you've been dealing with various problems and crises and things as well, then I sympathize and I feel for you. But real quick, I just want to remind you 
that if you enjoy the work that I do here and you want to help me to continue to be able to do it and, you know, to not have to get as much freelance and part-time work on the side unrelated to the DHP just to make ends meet and pay my bills, thus freeing up that time that I would devote to that part-time and freelance work to just devote to the DHP and stuff like that, then please consider supporting my work. There's a bunch of ways to do it. But the most helpful is if you sign up for a recurring donation via either Patreon or Subscribestar. And just some of the benefits that you will be eligible for depending on your level of contribution would be things like access to the first 52 episodes of the show, what I call Vintage DHP. And by the way, that includes two episodes on the Seminole Wars that I made years ago and that obviously relate to the talk that's going to be the centerpiece of this episode. And then um, in addition to that, again, depending on how much you sign up to contribute, you can get access to exclusive bonus DHP episodes available nowhere else, and you can get access to ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes. You can get access to join the private DHP Scholar Warriors Facebook group you can get access to either monthly or every other month, depending on how much you contribute, live streams with me that include opportunities for Q&A and stuff like that, as well as behind-the-scenes sort of stuff. And then should you sign up for a little bit more generous of a monthly contribution, you can get access to the DHP Book Club, which meets over Zoom once a month to discuss cool books that I select and typically we alternate every other month. We go back and forth between fiction books and nonfiction books. And this month's book discussion, which will be happening in a couple of weeks from when I'm recording this intro, will be on a really neat Mike Resnick book. And it's not Santiago. It's a Mike Resnick book. I don't think I've ever talked about publicly. Maybe I briefly mentioned it somewhere, but not one I've talked about very much, but it's a really cool one that combines space western stuff with some other kind of sci-fi subgenres and kind of mixes it all together with tall tales as a storytelling concept. So anyway, that's in a couple of weeks. And then the following month, June, we'll be reading a nonfiction book, which I have not yet selected, but I probably will be doing soon. So anyway, I hope you'll consider signing up to help support my work if you're not already doing so. And maybe if you already are a contributor at one of the lower levels, you might consider upping your contribution level in order to access more goodies and bonuses and to help me keep doing what I'm doing because it's been pretty tough times lately for me. But anyway, without further ado, here is my talk on Osceola delivered uh, several weeks ago at the Florida State LP convention. My topic is going to be the guy on my shirt. It's always handy when you can wear the shirt of whatever you're talking about to go speak in an event or something. So, um, 
How many are actually Florida residents currently? Okay, that's good. How many Florida natives? Makes two of us. Born on the Georgia border or born in a plane flying over Florida? Okay. All right. It's amazing to me how, how few Floridians know their history, but then again, I've not spent enough time in other states to know. Like, do people in Missouri have no clue about the history of Missouri? I don't know. Um, but Florida is particularly loaded with transplants and has been since at least about World War II. And so um, a lot of Floridians know little or no Florida history. And to me, that's a problem, not just because I'm a history dork, so I think that everybody... Uh, should know history, but also, you know, when you think about the possibility even of things like radical decentralization or even secession, you know, I have my dream of the Republic of Florida man, and I've got it all planned out, like the national anthem is going to be Freebird, I've got the whole thing figured out. But one of the things that gives people a real willingness to stand up on behalf of things like, you know, local self-government and home rule and resisting faraway imperial encroachments and whatever. One of the things that gives the, it gives people historically the kind of backbone to take a stand is a sense of their history, the history of their place, the knowledge of the land. This is something that struck me a lot. Um, I've studied a fair amount of Irish history and I've, I, uh, back when I was still teaching college history, I led study abroad groups to Ireland three times and you know, when you look at the history, the Irish had to try for like 700 years before they finally succeeded in kicking the Brits out of, you know, all but the northern counties. That takes some real endurance, you know, and, and particularly since a lot of that time Ireland, or sorry, England was, you know, the heart of the world's most powerful empire for much of that time. And a big part of it is, I think, that the Irish, they had a real sense of their home, their culture, their history. You know, they could tell you about, like, ancient kings of Ireland going, you know, Brian Baru or somebody. And so this love of their their homeland, the geography, the history, the myths, um, I think this is one of the things that gave them the endurance to keep standing up to London, despite losing, you know, countless times. And so I think it's worth, especially as more people have fled to Florida recently as, you know, COVID refugees and so forth, uh, I think it's worth, if you're not a, a native Floridian or even if you're just, you are, but you're not familiar with the history, to, to learn about it because uh, it's, it's a lot more interesting than people might think. It didn't start with Disney World. So if you go back to, say, uh, the late 18th century, so end of the 1700s, Florida was nothing like what it was today. First off, it was extremely lightly populated, and it was an imperial frontier battleground between multiple empires. You had uh, the British involved in the area. The Spanish, of course, had been involved in Florida since the 1500s. You know, the Ponce de Leon first poked around a little bit in, in uh, 1513, but didn't really establish any enduring settlement. Um, it wasn't until Pedro Menendez in 1565 that the Spanish established a continuous presence in St. Augustine. And they were there for the next, you know, 200 plus years. But amazingly, the Spanish, despite being here a long time, had a very light footprint. They basically had St. Augustine, Pensacola, and a handful of tiny little, uh, like military outposts. And for a while, some religious missions, you know, Franciscans and so forth. Um, but they had a very light presence. And so, 
as a result, they never had control of it the way they had control of something like Mexico or something like Cuba. In the mid-17th century, of course, you had the Seven Years' War, which the British won. And one of the things that happened as a result of the British victory there is Florida got handed over to the British. And this is, uh, to Florida history dorks like me, this is known as uh, the British period in Florida history, creatively enough. And even the British never really established a huge presence in Florida while they ruled it. You know, the Spanish still had an influence. The British ruled it. Then at the end of the American Revolution, the British lost that war. And one of the things that happened, aside from the 13 colonies getting their independence, is Florida got handed back to Spain. This is what's known as the Second Spanish Period. And they would rule Spain for um, about a little shy of 40 years after they got it back from the British. Of course, during that time, you also had now another factor in the mix, which was a brand new empire called the United States of America, which, make, make no mistake, was an empire from its very founding, even though we don't like to say that. But it's been an empire from day one. Um, and I, I could do a whole like two-hour thing just on that, uh, but I won't. So... As a result, when Spain got Florida back, Florida was this weird imperial battleground where you had, the British had relinquished it, but they still had a presence. There were still British traders and sort of agents and things operating in Florida. Spain nominally ruled it, but they had a very light footprint. They only had control of a few areas. And as a result, much of Florida was, for good or for ill, kind of in a semi-anarchic state. Which brings in the additional factor, the natives, okay, uh, including the Seminole, of which Osceola was. Okay, so the Seminole were not an original native tribe of Florida. Most people don't know that. What I mean when I say that is there was no such thing as a group of people called the Seminole, say, as of the time Ponce de Leon came over in 1513. There was no such thing as the Seminole. Um, in fact, there was no such thing as a Seminole when Pedro Menendez founded St. Augustine. And there was no such thing as the Seminole, really, when the Spanish handed over Florida to the British. It was only roughly around the time of the British period and into the Second Spanish period that you started to even get something that people started to refer to as the Seminole. So the original native tribes of Florida are tribes that most people have never heard of unless they've studied Florida history like me. There are people uh, with names like the Calusa or the Tequesta or the Temuqua. But by the time Spain handed Florida over to Britain, those groups were virtually extinct, primarily because of disease and also, you know, wars and things like that. But disease was the number one thing. So Florida was like almost empty, really, by the mid-17th century outside of the handful of Spanish cities and things. And what happened was people started to come down into Florida sort of like as refugees from places of what today we would think of as Georgia and Alabama primarily. And these were mostly what are called Creek Indians. So the main uh, contingent and ingredient of the Seminole were actually Creek Indians. And the Seminole, in terms of their language, their culture, their religion, all that stuff, they, they remained basically Creek Indians. It's just they had a, they developed a distinct local identity and political identity as separate, you know, from uh, the main group of Creeks up in the north. So from very early on, after Florida went back to Spain at the end of the American Revolution, 
American leaders and um, various other people looked at Florida with a very covetous eye. And it was partly because of, you know, all this empty land as they would have seen it, but partly it was also, um, there was a security concern, particularly if you were an American living on what was then the southern frontier, like South Georgia or what today is Alabama. And number one, it was the fact that because Florida was still nominally Spanish, Technically, it wasn't supposed to be legal under international law for Americans, say, to, let's say, I don't know, you owned a plantation near that southern border. And um, let's say, you know, some hostile Indians from Florida raided your plantation. Well, now you're in all kinds of legal difficulties because in order to retaliate, maybe try and regain, you know, if you've lost property or whatever, you'd have to pursue across an international border. And it's really messy um, in terms of all the border violence that started to happen around the turn of the century from the 17 to the 1800s. It's really messy to try and figure out, like, who's starting what. It's really difficult. But it seems like from my research that more often than not, it was actually um, the Anglo-white settlers who were kind of starting the hostilities in many cases. Not, not necessarily all the time, but a lot of the time. And some of it seems to have been driven by envy because these people we know as the Seminole, they started to do pretty well for themselves. And the Spanish had kind of like a hands-off approach to them where their view was like, eh, as long as these people aren't, you know, attacking our cities and bothering us, we're going to kind of just let them run themselves. And, you know, we don't even really have enough boots on the ground to control them, even if we wanted to. So let's just kind of look the other way. And so a lot of Americans, particularly in the Deep South, felt like we need to get, take over Florida so that these Indians can't keep using it as a base to attack us. It's sort of analogous to the argument for going into Afghanistan after 9-11. It's amazing how many aspects of the Seminole Wars have very current parallels. Um, you know, it just keeps repeating itself over and over and over. Um, I used to tell my students when I was teaching Florida history if you think Vietnam was the first Vietnam, you're wrong. Before Vietnam, there was the Philippines from like 1899 to 1902 thereabouts. And what I mean by Vietnam is a very difficult counterinsurgency campaign against skillful guerrilla fighters in a difficult tropical climate. Okay, that's Vietnam. That's also the Philippines. That's also the Seminole Wars. So it's like you can go back, you know, all, at this point almost 200 years and see, oh, we just keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And each time um, the attitude seems to be, of course, the leaders who run these sorts of things, they want you to just, you know, have no sense of the past so that you don't realize they're pulling the same tricks over and over and over again. And the attitude after these messy wars, like the Seminole Wars or like the Philippines Wars or like Vietnam, the attitude often seems to be when they're over, let's just move on. This is kind of a downer. Oh, it's depressing. It makes us feel not great about being Americans to really look at these things dead in the eyes and see what really happened and why it turned so ugly. And so as a result, because we don't want to look at the aspects of history that make us uncomfortable and that are kind of a downer, Okay, then we don't learn any lessons. And then we just keep doing the same things over and over again. And I expect the, the, the leaders, the political elites, to keep trying to do stupid and evil things because that's just the kind of people they are. But I don't think, I think most high level politicians, particularly in our era, are psychopaths. I, I genuinely believe that. But 
I don't think the majority of average random people walking around on the street are psychopaths. But what they are is ignorant and easily duped by psychopaths. And so if you don't know your history and you don't know how these people operate, they're going to lead you into the next disaster, into the next, you know, immoral, uh, horrible mess. The other aspect that caused many Americans to want to try to take over Florida, uh, particularly if they were Southerners, was that another thing going on was that slaves were escaping. And if you were a slave and you escaped from a plantation in Maryland, your best bet might be to try to get all the way to Canada, because technically, according to the Fugitive Slave Law, yeah, you might be able to fly under the radar and, you know, live in, in Philadelphia or whatever and not get busted, but you would always have that sort of Damocles hanging over your head. Uh, and so, you know, it's another one of those ironies of history that we're often told about, you know, people fleeing to America for freedom and that sort of thing. And in many cases, that's true. That's obviously been the case for many people. But there are also cases of people fleeing the United States for freedom and for their lives. Um, and so slaves, if they escape from the Deep South, if they escape from Georgia or something like that, their best bet at the time was to get to Spanish Florida. Because even though technically Spain was supposed to be, by treaty and things, obligated to try to catch slaves and return them to their owners, in reality, the Spanish government of Florida, they didn't really have the capability, even if they wanted to, because they had such a light footprint in Florida. And they weren't really inclined to either. They had kind of problems with the U.S. Um, they, they often were you know, having friction with the U.S. government at the time. And so basically Spain's attitude was like, eh, we're going to kind of look the other way. And these escaped slaves were building entire communities and in many cases doing pretty well for themselves. Um, and many of them established pretty friendly relationships with the Seminole. And it's kind of complicated. And because the Seminole were not um, like a primarily written word culture, we don't always have super detailed documents about everything. But basically a whole group kind of emerged who eventually came to be known as the Black Seminole. And these were escaped slaves and things like that, that very often they would live in like side-by-side communities um, where, you know, like right next to a Seminole village, there would be a Black Seminole village. And they had a complex relationship. The Seminoles sort of saw themselves as kind of being like owners of these people because you know, the, the Seminole, like many Southern Indians, you know, didn't have a moral problem with slavery as such. But it wasn't the same as being a, like a slave on an Anglo-American plantation. It was much more relaxed of a relationship. It was almost uh, more like a, like a slightly less bad version of feudalism or something like this, where the black Seminole would just sort of like pay their red Seminole neighbors, you know, a certain amount of their crops every year or something as sort of like tribute, but other than that, kind of left alone. And then a lot of these black Seminoles also began to take on Seminole culture. They started to dress like the Seminoles, learn their language, their culture, etc. And so just put all this together. Imagine you're an Anglo-American plantation owner in Georgia. Just across the Spanish border in Florida, you've got Indians not under your control, doing whatever they want, sometimes getting into conflict along the borderlands. And now you've got escaped slaves living with them, getting along with them, setting up their own communities and doing all right. And imagine how worried you would be if you owned a large plantation full of slaves you'd be so worried that your slaves would hear rumors. Hey, you know, if you can just get to the Florida border, there's entire communities of black people that are just, you know, doing their thing. And, you know, get to one of those, you're, you're basically, you're free. So from very early on, the independent United States was very interested in getting Florida. And it escalated in the aftermath of the War of 1812. 
the War of 1812 also had Indian conflicts that happened alongside of it. And the one that matters to our story here is with the Creek Indians. And in particular, the, the Creek Indians were actually a confederacy of multiple kind of smaller tribes and things like this. And they had a very decentralized political structure where each little kind of village or group or whatever governed itself. And some of the Creek Indians wanted to go to war against the United States. The, the Creek had long been pretty friendly with the British and had seen the United States as the much more dangerous uh, white tribe than the British. And so during the War of 1812, a lot of Indians saw it as an opportunity to kind of rise up against American control, take the opportunity of the war, um, an ally with the British against the Americans. And the Creek Indians split. Some of the Creeks didn't want to have any part of this, and some of them did. And the quote-unquote rebellious in the Americanized Creeks were known as the Red Sticks. They were the, like the militant ones who wanted to try and you know, throw off American control. Long story short, they got crushed by Andrew Jackson. This is really Andrew Jackson's first big military victory that makes him a star. Um, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, he crushes the Red Stick Creeks. Well, amongst the Red Stick Creeks was a young man called Billy Powell, but also known as Osceola. And Osceola around the time of the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, would have been around 10, 11 years old. We don't have an exact birthday for him. He was born somewhere around 1803 or 1804, depending on what source you look at. His mother was a Creek, but um, the historical record refers to as mixed race, so probably at least part white. Uh, his father was a white guy. Now, I think Osceola should be a hero to libertarians, and I think Osceola should be a hero to all true liberty-loving Florida men and Florida women. And I'm not going to be um, Elizabeth Warren and claim that I'm part seminal. As far as I know, I don't have any seminal DNA, so I'm not going to, you know, go, go doing that sort of thing. The reality is, though, just based on DNA, Osceola was probably at least half white, if not even more than half. Um, because his father was a British, like, traitor, um, and his, his mother is referred to as mixed race. But he was raised in the Creek culture and language and, you know, way of life. And so he always considered himself that, identified as that. And since, uh, Creek Indians, like many native tribes, were, were matrilineal, um, the fact that his mother was a Creek meant that the Creek Indians, you know, accepted him completely as one of them. And that's how he saw himself. So his family were part of the Red Stick contingent. They flee into Florida to escape and then live, you know, in relative peace and freedom from then on as he grows up. Well, um, then you get the First Seminole War. The First Seminole War, you could argue over exactly when it starts. I would say roughly around 1816, so pretty soon after the War of, of uh, 1812 ended, the first Seminole War starts. This war is the war by which the United States acquired Florida. This war, Andrew Jackson, now a general, is in charge of getting it done. And uh, there's a whole complicated story to this that I won't delve into too much because of time. But basically, at that point, James Monroe was president of the United States. And James Monroe wanted Florida 
but he wanted to try and do it in such a way as to not provoke Spain or potentially even Britain into war over it. He also wanted to cover his ass politically in case the conquest of Florida failed because there had been a few earlier kind of smaller attempts to take over Florida by the United States that were just really kind of half-baked, half-assed schemes that failed miserably. So James Monroe, who was a very savvy politician, kind of overlooked as a president a lot of times, James Monroe kind of gave Jackson ambiguous orders on purpose, most historians believe. And so basically it was like a CYA move He knew Jackson was aggressive and wanted to conquer Florida. So he gave him deliberately vague orders, knowing that Jackson would probably, you know, arguably exceed his orders and just decide, I'm just going to go take over Florida. But because the orders were kind of vague, Monroe knew if it goes bad, I can just kind of say, I didn't tell him to do that. Look at what I wrote. I didn't say go take over Florida. This guy just went nuts. So anyway, long story short, the first Seminole War was, was uh, over by about 1819, and it resulted in a treaty negotiated by John Quincy Adams, who was then Secretary of State, um, who, unlike any of our recent Secretaries of State, was actually a very skillful diplomat. And the, the Adams-Oneese Treaty of 1819 said, Florida's going to go to the United States as of 1821. And sure enough, that's what happened. So 1821, officially, the U.S. acquires Florida. At that time, there are believed to have been approximately 5,000 Seminole living in Florida. They were mostly living in the northern part of Florida, in the Panhandle and the very northernmost part of the peninsula. And a lot of them, like I said, were actually doing pretty well. They They were known to be very good hunters, and this was back when you could make a lot of money still by market hunting and selling pelts and things. They also were very successful as uh, cattlemen. Many of them were ranchers. They were, they were herding uh, wild Spanish cattle that you could find, and a lot of them were doing pretty well. And a lot of white settlers in the southern frontier areas resented this. They saw the Indians as being in the way of America's manifest destiny. They saw them as... Um, in their eyes, not using the land to its fullest potential. This was the common argument that Americans learned from the British of, well, if you believe in like the John Lockean idea of how to acquire property, how can you take land from these people who have been living here for generations, right? It seems like they kind of have dibs. They've been living here and whatever. And the argument would basically go, well, we have an exception. The exception is, It's okay to take land from people, even if they're already there and have been there for a while. It's still okay to take it if you think they're not putting it to its best use. This was the argument the English had first developed and perfected in justifying taking over Ireland, which was like the original beta test of almost everything the British Empire did later over the next bunch of centuries. So that was the argument. So by the time you start getting um, into the 1820s, eventually Andrew Jackson becomes president. And Andrew Jackson comes up with the idea of Indian removal. Okay, so there was a treaty worked out in the 1820s, I guess a little bit before Jackson became president, known as the Treaty of Moultrie Creek. Um, it was actually negotiated at a spot not too far outside St. Augustine near where I used to live. There's now a nice little park there. 
And the Treaty of Moultrie Creek said that the Seminole, now that Florida is American and now that American settlers are going to start moving into the place, the Seminole have to relocate to a reservation. The reservation was a big chunk of territory and kind of the, almost the dead center of the peninsula. It was a pretty big piece of land, but the problem was most of the Seminole live far north of that. And so it meant that they had to abandon homes, farms, ranches, whatever, to move to the reservation. But most of them actually did um, within a few years. Most of them actually did uh, because they were like, you know, this, this sucks, it's inconvenient, but if it means we get to be left alone and still, you know, do our thing, then whatever. Interestingly, the reservation's borders were drawn in such a way that it had no coastal access. This was because one of the things the Seminole had been doing for a while, again, they were pretty prosperous, successful people. They had been trading with places as far away as like Cuba. And so that they often could like sell their cattle and things like that to Cuba and get better money than selling it locally um, to people in Florida. Also, Americans were worried if the Seminole had coastal access, they might do things like import guns from the Spanish or the British or something like this. So um, anyway, no coastal access. So that goes into effect. This is when the Seminoles start to move, you know, further south from their initial homeland. And then in um, 1830, Jackson gets Congress to pass the Indian Removal Act. Now, this is the one that results in, among other things, the famous Trail of Tears. Um, and this was done, you know, Congress, the majority of Congress was on board with it. The relevant state governments were also totally on board with it as well. The Supreme Court actually pushed back against it, at least in regard to the Cherokee, but Jackson just ignored them famously. Basically, the idea of Indian removal was all of the remaining southeastern, quote-unquote, uncivilized, uh, sorry, they, they would have... Um, they would have referred to the, some of them at least as civilized tribes, maybe not the Seminole, but like the Cherokee and stuff they would call civilized tribes, you know, very, very un-PC. The idea was that they would be removed from places like North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, out to what today we would think of as Oklahoma. This is when that happened. You know, the Cherokee took the federal government to court and said, hey, we've got treaties and things that say this is our land. You can't just kick us off. The Supreme Court actually sided with the Cherokee and said, yeah, they're right. And Andrew Jackson supposedly said, the Supreme Court Chief Justice at the time was John Marshall. Supposedly, Andrew Jackson said, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Revealing the Supreme Court has no actual enforcement mechanism. They have no, you know, army or SWAT team or whatever. They rely on the other branches of the government acquiescing to their decisions. And so Jackson went ahead and had the Cherokee marched out to Oklahoma anyway, and this is the Trail of Tears. Well, uh, many Seminole were also not on board with this treaty. Oh, sorry, with, with this policy of Indian removal. So there was uh, an agent in charge of dealing with the Seminole named Wiley Thompson. And the U.S. government would appoint someone to be the agent to deal with each Indian tribe that the U.S. government was dealing with. And so the agent was supposed to be kind of like a middleman intermediary between the U.S. government and the tribe. Supposed to be trying like to be a, a relatively fair and honest broker between the two. Often, as you might expect, though, that was not the reality. So Wiley Thompson was the point man in trying to get the Seminole to agree 
to leave, to leave Florida. And some of them were okay with it. They saw it as just the way to avoid, you know, violence and, and things like that. But many of them were not. One of the things that Wiley Thompson started doing in the early 1830s that angered many Seminole was prohibiting the sale of guns and ammunition to the Seminole. Many Seminole took this as not just an annoyance that, you know, because they were, many of them were professional hunters. Obviously, they also wanted to be able to defend themselves. This was still a rugged frontier, you know, areas like around where we're standing. But they also saw it as an insult. And one of the Seminole who seems to have been most bothered by being told, you're no longer allowed to buy guns and ammo, was Osceola. By the way, Osceola was never technically a chief. He's often referred to by people who don't know the history as Chief Osceola. Um, that's actually not correct. He was never technically a chief. He was just a very intelligent, charismatic, and respected leader who also turns out to have been a very skillful guerrilla fighter. And many people look up to him, but he was never technically a chief, although he was good friends and a close advisor to Micanopi, who was a prominent Seminole chief. And supposedly, when Osceola heard that Wiley Thompson was saying Seminole are no longer allowed to buy guns and ammo, he was like really pissed off and basically said, no, that's the mark of a slave. If you're not allowed to buy guns and ammo, you are a slave. And I'm not going to let these people tell me that I'm now in the position of a slave. I'm not accepting that. So tensions began to escalate. Um, between Osceola and some of the other resistant Seminole leaders and agents of the U.S. government. In 1832, some Seminole leaders were basically bribed and threatened into signing a treaty known as the Treaty of Payne's Landing. And basically this said that any Seminole leader and sort of his, you know, again, it's very decentralized, each little kind of like village and area has its own a chief and things like this, but that any Seminole leader who agrees on behalf of himself and his people to move out to Oklahoma is going to be, like, paid, you know, and they promise them certain amounts of money and supplies and whatever like that. Some of the Seminole leaders signed on, but many did not. One of those who did not was Osceola. And the story is that when Osceola was presented with the documents to sign the Treaty of Payne's Landing, his response was, he pulled out a knife and stabbed the treaty and basically said something like, this is what I think of your deal. And there's question as to whether this is just, you know, an apocryphal kind of mythological story or not. Supposedly, an historian a while back dug through the National Archives, found an original copy of the Treaty of Payne's Landing, and said that, yes, there was a triangular cut into it that looked like it could very well have been from a knife point. Whether it happened that way or not, there is uh, a statue in Silver Springs. If you ever go to Silver Springs, there is a statue of Osceola stabbing his knife into the Treaty of Payne's Landing, Payne's Landing basically as a F.U. to Uncle Sam. This is what I think of your removal policy. Things started to escalate. Osceola had kind of a frenemy relationship with Wiley Thompson. They kind of got along sometimes, but also Osceola was not at all shy about being pissed off when he thought Wiley Thompson was doing something wrong. Um, he would just like go into his office and yell at him and stuff like this. But then at other times they would kind of get along. And so at one point in 1835, as tensions were really starting to escalate, 
Osceola apparently went in and was ranting to Wiley Thompson, complaining about things. And um, whatever he said, Wiley Thompson got so personally offended that he actually ordered Osceola to be arrested. And Osceola was held in, you know, some sort of a makeshift cell or whatever uh, for two nights until Osceola apologized, said, I'm sorry I offended you, said, if you'll let me out, I promise I'll sign your treaty and go to Oklahoma. We now know he did not intend to do any of these things and that his apology was tactical and insincere. So Wiley Thompson fell for it, said, all right, we'll let you out. And you know what? Let's, you know, be friends again. Let's let bygones be be bygones. And in fact, as a making up present, Wiley Thompson gave Osceola a fancy custom-made rifle. Friends again. Except inside, Osceola is planning to never leave, and he's planning his revenge. Tensions begin to escalate. Looks like there's going to be war because a lot of the Seminole don't want to go to Oklahoma. And can you blame them? Who wants to go to Oklahoma now? Imagine Oklahoma in the 1830s. If you think Oklahoma is a big empty nothing today, imagine what it's like in the 1830s. And especially, you know, you're coming from someplace like Florida. Good luck in the winter, right? So it all came to a head and the official start of the Second Seminole War would be in late 1835. On one day, two major things went down that kicked off the war. It went down virtually simultaneously. First was something called the Dade Massacre. So there was a contingent of a bit over 100 U.S. soldiers who were um, marching from Fort Brooke, which is basically at Tampa, to Fort King, which is today's Ocala. And the Seminole decided they were going to launch their war uh, of rebellion and resistance to being relocated against this column of U.S. soldiers. And long story short, they very skillfully carried out an ambush and wiped out, I believe, all but one, if I remember right. Well over 100 U.S. soldiers they wiped out in a, in a very one-sided battle. And um, there's now a state park of some sort there that actually does a reenactment of the massacre. If you ever want to go watch, it's, it's pretty good. Um, I have an aunt who's a Florida park ranger, and that was one of the parks she worked at for a while. Of course, Dade County and a number of other things named after, after Dade, the commander of these guys who got wiped out. At roughly the same time, back um, over at Fort King, just outside of Ocala, that's where Wiley Thompson, the Indian agent, was. And they knew that the Seminole, even before the Dade Massacre happened, they knew that like it was a very touchy situation, that the Seminole seemed to be preparing to potentially fight. And so they had like some extra security measures. But even so, Wiley Thompson was confident enough that almost every day, he and some of his closest friends at the fort would go like take a walk outside the, the fort itself on the grounds. And um, the same day that the Dade Massacre was happening, however many miles away it is, 50, 100 miles, whatever, Wiley Thompson decides to go out for his daily stroll uh, with a few friends. And guess what? Osceola is leading a small group of Seminole to ambush them. And, um, you know, I, I like to, in my mind, I picture, like, Wiley Thompson's about to take a whiz or something, and then suddenly Seminole pop up with guns. But um, 
Yeah, Osceola made sure he had dibs on firing the first shot. He used the very fancy custom rifle that Wiley Thompson had just given him some months earlier as an apology gift to do the deed. Shot, shot Wiley Thompson. He and his men killed all the other guys who were with him. And um, supposedly, Wiley Thompson's body was found just riddled with bullets. So, and these are muzzle-loading, you know, type rifles. So, it's unlikely that Osceola was just sitting there for 10 minutes, you know, reloading shot after shot. So, basically, um, you know, all of his boys were getting in a few shots on this guy that they all hated. So, that kicked off the Second Seminole War. The Second Seminole War lasted from 1835 to uh, 1842. It's the longest Indian war in American history. It's the costliest Indian war in American history in lives and money. You know, most people, if you ask them, what's the longest and costliest Indian war, they may not give you an answer, but their brain is thinking like, you know, Lakota, Little Bighorn, like something out there, right? Custer, some of, the, some of those things, right? Kevin Costner movies. Um, but the reality is that the longest and bloodiest and costliest Indian war was here, the Second Seminole War. The Seminole were extremely outnumbered, extremely outgunned, yet they were very skillful guerrilla fighters operating in a very difficult wilderness environment, which Florida very much still was. And so as a result, it was one of these very frustrating wars for the American soldiers. Again, very similar to Vietnam in a lot of ways. In fact, a lot of what the American soldiers were doing during the Second Seminole War was essentially an early version of the search and destroy tactics that were used in Vietnam. Basically, send out a patrol of soldiers to march around looking for engines, and then eventually they'll ambush you, and then you try and kill them. Except they might take a few shots at you and then run away to do it another day. Which, very confusing, because then the Americans are like, they're not standing and fighting. They're running away. Why? We're winning this war. And not realize, like, no, dummy. They're wearing you out through attrition. So it was one of those messy kinds of wars that soldiers really don't like to be in. And, um, you know, a succession of generals came through the Second Seminole War, and none of them really figured out how to win it. It, it was, you know, kind of shades of Afghanistan as far as that goes. You know, like, oh, bring in uh, Petraeus. He's going to fix it, you know. And then he, he eventually figures out, like, some little BS battle that's not even really a battle that he didn't even really win, decides to be like, woohoo, victory, I've won, I'm going to go leave. And then the next general comes in and the war still isn't over. And then you could just say, well, you know, I had it under control until I left and that jerk came in and screwed it all up. So despite being very outnumbered, very outgunned, uh, the Seminole put up a very uh, skillful resistance. Nonetheless, they were getting worn down. You know, they were, they were kind of cut off from outside supply. They didn't have their own industrial capability. As I said, even at the start of the Second Seminole War, maybe 5,000 Seminole lived in Florida. They were ridiculously outnumbered. And as a result, the more the war dragged on, the more some Seminole would just out of desperation agree to go to Oklahoma. Um, and very often they'd be, you know, bribed and things like this. And so, you know, periodically over the course of the war, you know, some chief would come in and say, all right, I've had it. You know, my, my people are about to starve. We're out of ammunition. What's the best deal we can get? Fine, we'll go to Oklahoma. But many were just determined to stay no matter what. Osceola ended up in U.S. custody in 1837, in October of 1837, the um, Americans at, I believe it was Fort Payton is what it was called at the time, which is near St. Augustine, the Americans had one Seminole leader that they had captured in custody. 
And um, another Seminole leader came in to sort of negotiate and parlay on behalf of himself and his people. And he said, hey, I can get Osceola to come in and negotiate, you know, tomorrow or whatever. Like, is that cool? And the general in charge of this fort was uh, a general uh, whose last name was Hernandez. And Hernandez, uh, his commander was higher-up general named Thomas Jessup. So Thomas Jessup is giving Hernandez instructions of how to handle this. And he basically says, okay, if Osceola wants to come in and negotiate, okay, maybe we can get him to go to Oklahoma, but I don't trust him. And so I want you to ask him, when, when he and his guys come in to the fort to talk to you, I want you to ask him these questions. Now, what exactly the questions were, I'm still not sure. But basically, it was to ask them questions that if they didn't answer very straight up, you know, if they were at all evasive, Hernandez's orders were, just go ahead and arrest them all. This was despite the fact that there was a flag of truce, which, you know, was considered very serious back then. So Osceola and his guys come in. Hernandez starts asking him the questions he's supposed to ask them. And supposedly, Osceola and his guys give kind of evasive answers and so Hernandez is like, boom, all right, you guys are all under arrest. To hell with the flag of truce. Osceola's arrested. Now, this was very controversial at the time, even amongst many white Americans. Osceola already had this almost mythical reputation as a great leader, um, you know, a great warrior, all this sort of thing. Many white Americans, even if they wanted to get rid of the Seminole, still respected him. He had that kind of a position that sometimes happens, you know, where people develop respect even for someone who they perceive as an enemy. And in fact, um, there were even members of the U.S. Army and members of Congress that spoke out against the arrest of Osceola under a flag of truce and said, hey, you know, this is, this is extremely dishonorable to the U.S. military, the U.S. flag. You shouldn't be doing this sort of thing, arresting a guy who's come in to talk under a flag of truce. Now, to be fair, it's totally possible Osceola may have been coming in intending to do a jailbreak and get his guys who were in custody out. It's quite possible. Certainly wasn't, you know, beneath him to do something like that. But the point is, he didn't even have the chance until, you know, the U.S. military, you know, ignored the flag of truce and busted him. So he got... Oh, by the way, one more thing I'll mention just that stands out about the Second Seminole War as an Indian conflict. It's also the only Indian war in which the United States Navy and United States Marines participated. Uh, unique in that regard. Anyway, Osceola was arrested. He was held for a little while at Fort Marion, which is what, at the time, the fort in St. Augustine, you know, the Castillo de San Marcos, that st stone fort many of you have probably been to. It was known as Fort Marion at the time. Um, he was held there for a little while. But the, the soldiers there were concerned that he might get busted out by some of his friends. Because it wasn't that far. Osceola basically at that time kind of lived and operated in like the Gainesville area. And so for good reason, they were concerned that some of Osceola's buddies might come in and break him out. So before long, they shipped him up to Fort Moultrie, which is just outside of Charleston, South Carolina. And there he was held um, for the next few months. So he's arrested in October, held uh, briefly in Fort Marion, shipped up to Fort Moultrie and was there for a few months. And supposedly, like, everybody who met him and interacted with him was impressed by him. I'm not even 100% sure if he was literate, to be honest with you. But apparently he was an extremely intelligent guy, 
very charismatic, just one of those people that people are impressed by. And um, multiple artists came in. This is still pre-photography. Multiple very respected artists of the time period came in and met him and painted him. So, you know, there's this and there's a, there's a few other, you know, portraits and things done by um, some of these artists. I think it was this one done by a guy named George Catlin, who was like one of the most respected artists in America at the time. He also kind of became friendly with some of his captors. However, he was very sick. Um, Osceola had apparently been dealing with some serious illness for months, even before he was arrested. And of course, being held in a virtual dungeon, not going to help your health. He is believed to have been suffering from malaria, and then also towards the end of his life may have also been suffering from tonsillitis, which back in those days, things like tonsillitis or strep throat can flat out kill you. So um, he gets sicker and sicker, and on January 30th, 1838, Osceola dies of illness in custody in Fort Moultrie. Before he died, he was speaking to uh, the doctor who was taking care of him, who was a doctor, I forget his first name, his last name was Whedon, um, spelled differently from Joss Whedon, so as far as I know, no relation to the Firefly guy. But, um, you know, he gotten pretty friendly with Dr. Whedon, and supposedly he um, requested, you know, realizing he's probably going to die soon, please um, have my body shipped back to Florida and buried there, because that's what I consider my homeland. That's what I was fighting for was to stay there and to be able to just live the way I was living. Unfortunately, Dr. Whedon was not a good enough friend to um, respect Osceola's request. I don't even know, you know, his hands may have been tied you know, by whoever was running the fort. But instead, Osceola would be buried outside the fort, just outside of it, actually. If you go to Fort Moultrie today, you can, you can go see his gravestone. His name is misspelled on it. It is spelled O-C-E-O-L-A. They left off the S. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's fairly positive. This is like, you know, patriot and warrior. and It's got like a pretty positive thing, to be fair. You know, once your enemy is dead, I suppose you can start saying nice things about him. That way you can pump up your own ego like, yeah, I conquered this badass. How about that? You know? Um, however, Dr. Whedon uh, did something that strikes us as kind of bizarre today. Um, this is back in the days when people were really big into things like phrenology and thinking that like by studying someone's head, you could like really learn important stuff about them. And so Dr. Whedon decided, this is a really remarkable, impressive individual. Someone needs to preserve his head, and I guess I'm the man to do it because I'm the doctor. So Dr. Whedon, when Osceola's body was getting ready for burial, he cut his head off. Then he um, apparently used, like, Osceola had a scarf that he liked, and he used that to keep the head on. Body goes out to be buried, and somehow or other, he's able to, like, the doctor slips in and, you know, takes the head before the body is buried keeps the head, like, pickles it or something, you know. And then um, the doctor apparently owned a drugstore in St. Augustine, and he had Osceola's head on display in the drugstore for several years. Then he eventually either gave it or sold it to another doctor who had a museum that included a bunch of heads, because that was like the style at the time was collecting and studying human heads. And so Osceola's head then sat in this guy's museum for a few decades, and then was supposedly lost at um, uh, when a fire happened. So, yeah. He, Osceola, by the way, when he was buried outside of Fort Moultrie, he was given full military honors at his funeral. He was very respected as, a, as an opponent, as a, as a foe by American soldiers. 
So you've got Osceola's headless body buried outside of Fort Moultrie with a misspelled gravestone, his head being put on display and eventually being lost probably to a fire. The Second Seminole War, by the time it ended, in 20 years, the Seminole population of, of Florida had been reduced. From, from the time period that the U.S. took over Florida until the end of the Second Seminole War, the Seminole population of Florida had been reduced by approximately 94%. Most of those being people shipped off to Oklahoma one way or another, but many of them also killed. 94%. So before, you know, at the time the U.S. took over Florida, maybe 5,000 Seminole. By the end of the Second Seminole War, a few hundred Seminoles still lived in Florida, and they were down to the Everglades, which was such a harsh environment that white men could hardly even think about going in there after them. There still would be a Second Seminole War, um, trying to deal with some of those renegades who lived in the Everglades in the late 1850s. Um, but, you know, by most definitions, what happened to the Seminole would be considered ethnic cleansing. In, in today's, you know, terminology, where you basically eliminate 94% of a people from where they lived previously. And, you know, what, what inspires me about Osceola is, yes, you know, he had a tragic end, but I think he was a great practical libertarian in the sense that he probably never read a single book of philosophy or political science. But he had an instinctive desire to be free, to live his life, to be left alone, regardless of what some president or some Congress hundreds or thousands of miles away had to say about it. And he was willing to fight for it. And he fought very skillfully um, until, you know, he got captured. And so I think he's somebody that Floridians who value liberty should know more about and should look up to. And, you know, is a very inspiring figure. And um, I'll just wrap up with a couple of quotes here. So this, this first one is as follows. The government is in the wrong, and this is the chief cause of the persevering opposition of the Indians, who have nobly defended their country against our attempt to enforce a fraudulent treaty. The natives used every means to avoid a war, but were forced into it by the tyranny of our government. The guy who said that was a U.S. Army major with the very cool name of Ethan Allen Hitchcock. Ethan Allen Hitchcock was a U.S. Army officer who fought against the Seminole. He was even one of those who discovered the remains of the Dade Massacre after it happened. So he actually had discovered, you know, his comrades, fellow American soldiers, slaughtered and mutilated in the aftermath of the Dade Massacre. And yet even he was fair-minded enough to say... We're not the good guys here. These people are fighting just to stay in their homes and to keep living the way they want to. We're the aggressors. They're not. And then one more quote, and I'll call it a day. This is from uh, John and Mary Lou Missel, who are a husband and wife team who are like among the top historians of the Seminole. And in one of their books on the Seminole Wars, called The Seminole Wars, America's Longest Indian Conflict, they say, militarily, the Second Seminole War was an embarrassment. The United States and its powerful army were repeatedly humiliated by a small band of warriors whom most whites derided as nothing more than quote-unquote savages. The honor and glory that were supposed to accompany civilized warfare were almost totally absent. For those who fought in the war, there was little about which to go home and boast. 
It was an experience few of the participants wanted to talk about, and very few did. For the nation as a whole, the war was often seen as a moral failure. The Indians were considered desperate underdogs, defiantly attempting to defend their homes against a heartless and greedy aggressor. Many of them were taken prisoner while negotiating under a flag of truce, and seminal villages and farms were burned, leaving women and children to scavenge for food in the inhospitable swamps. The Indians, of course, committed their own atrocities and treacheries, but many people felt they were driven to it. When the war ended, these painful and troubling thoughts were easily put aside. Because the Seminole Wars were so quickly forgotten, the American public never learned some valuable lessons. Later conflicts with the Indians of the West proved no less uh, unsatisfying. The parallels with our experiences in Vietnam and the Middle East are often very striking, which may be one of the reasons the tale is so relevant. Perhaps if we Americans had understood what happened in our nation's infancy, we may have been better able to avoid the pitfalls that have entrapped us in our present day and age. End quote. All right, I hope you enjoyed my talk on Osceola. And again, I hope you'll consider stepping up to help support my work if you're not already doing so and upping your contribution if you are already a contributor at one of the lower levels. Also, by the way, remember, and I'll put a link to the page for this in the show notes, but if you are involved with any kind of an event or organization or anything and you would like to have me give some sort of a talk or presentation to your group or event, you can use the particular contact page for this that I will link to in the show notes to arrange to hire me uh, to come address your group or your event, and I would be happy to do so. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope that I'll be able to get back to you with another dose of Dangerous History relatively soon. Fingers crossed, knock on wood, God willing, and not too many other disasters happen to me in real life. Take care. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.